0: Well, turn with me to Genesis chapter 19, and um, if you don't have a Bible with you, then there might be some in the seats in front of you you can get. Um, We're going to be moving through the scriptures today, and I'm going to ask you to turn to a few places. Um, So we begin in Genesis chapter 19, though, and I'm not going to get through the entire chapter. I have the entire chapter done and ready to teach, but I didn't get nearly as far as I thought. So we'll... Be at least another week or another two weeks. And um, uh, the, the title of the study is The Unintended Consequences of Compromise. And um, this is kind of a, a look at what happens in uh, Lot's family. And this is going to carry over, and we're going to see that. Of course, this whole chapter is dealing with the destruction of the wicked city of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding areas. And how God brings judgment upon them. This is the next big judgment in Scripture, right? I mean, we have the, the fall of man in the garden, and then we have the, the flood of the earth, and now here in chapter 19, we have a, a region of cities that are going to be wiped out because of their sin. And we'll talk about what their sin was. It's obvious as you read through chapter 19 what one part of their sin was, but there are other. Uh, places in Scripture that actually talk about this city and what was going on. So I'm just going to tell you right up front. I mean, if you read ahead, chapter 19, or you're familiar, you're looking right now, you know that this is a, this, the account where the men of Sodom come out to abuse the angels, the messengers of the Lord. And um, I have asked um, that the youth be in here with us for the next couple of weeks because as we go over this topic on um, we're going to hit issues of like sexuality. We're going to hit issues of marriage. We're going to hit issues of gender identity. And we're going to talk about these things. I want our kids to hear this. And I have every confidence that, that Joel and Daniel would do a good job teaching it. But I want your kids and you to hear it together. And I'm, I'm not going to go into gory details. Don't worry about it. That's not what I do anyway, you know, we go, our, our minds can fill in the blanks enough, um, but we're going to certainly read a lot of Scripture, and we're going to talk about what the Word of God has to say. So let's begin there, reading at verse 1, and we'll just kind of work our way through this chapter over the next few weeks. Um, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself, bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So here we see the slow progression of compromise, and you're like, don't see it there. It's there. Where is Sodom in this verse? Where is he? He's at the gate. But where did he begin? At one point, he was there at the, the place that Abraham had set up to worship at the trees of Mamre in Hebron. And he was there. But then, remember the dispute came over the land. There was not enough grazing land for the goats, for the sheep. And so they decided they were going to separate because they didn't want this to become a division among them and the family. And he says, listen, you go wherever you want to go and I'll go the opposite direction. Lot looks up. He sees the plain of Sodom. And he says, this is a great place for me to go and graze. But it was known that this was a wicked place. Now, the grass wasn't wicked. And that's where he was going was to feed his animals. And so he was a tent dweller. And there he set up his tent and they began to feed. But it wasn't long before they were now near the city of Sodom. And then we read that they moved into the city of Sodom. And they've got a house inside the city of Sodom. And now we read that he's sitting at the gate. Which is he's just one of the boys. He's one of the guys. Maybe even one of the leaders in the country, because men would usually congregate at the gate to talk about the news of the day, what's going on, what's happening with the crops, what's going on with the flocks. This was happening, but it was also a place where they would pass judgment. So if there was a uh, legal matter that came up, the leaders would gather at the gate, and you could they would settle the issue there. There was usually a stone uh, bench seat that they would sit on. Um, If you go up to the city of Dan, and we're going to be going to Israel in 2022, about this time, March 2022, if you go at this, you'll get to see one of those places where they would sit on on that stone. And so this is where he is. Is he one of the judges? It kind of seems like it, but they're not very happy about it. And maybe he just was there to get news. But uh, this is what's going on. He is in the heartbeat of the city now. I'm not saying that he's compromised in terms of falling into great evil sin, but he is compromised, and the title is The Unintended Consequences of Compromise. And the result we're going to see is the result on his family. He seems to be able to weather the storm. But Mrs. Lot, his daughters, you're going to be fully disgusted with. Um, and his sons who thinks he's only joking when he says it's time to go, they all are impacted negatively by the compromise and the close proximity that he has chosen to live next to the world. That culture infects his family in a most terrible way. And it is a progression. He looks and he sees the land. He goes to live in the land. He then sets up Home inside the city, and now he's at the gate. Psalm 1 gives us this warning Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You see that kind of same progression there, don't you? First you're walking, and then you're standing. And then you're seated. You are right in the midst. You are the one that was once you were walking and you were getting the counsel, maybe to you know, walk in an evil way. But now you're seated and you're the one that's giving out that counsel. And it's that slow progression of decline. No Christian who's on fire with the Lord decides they want to ruin their walk with Jesus. No Christian decides, I really want to bring all kinds of havoc and pain into my family. No Christian does that. It's those subtle compromises that we make that we have to be so careful of. The enemy realizes that it's better to allow things to slowly burn and bring destruction than for it to be a volcanic moment eruption that overcomes everything. He is so patient, he is so willing to wait. He's like a, a lion in the grass, watching the herd, and he knows that he can't just go walking into the middle. Everybody's gonna scatter. So he waits for those that get on the edges, and as they get on the edges, then he makes his attack. He's like a guy that realizes he has one bullet in his six-shooter, and he's gonna wait. He's not gonna just go shooting it you know, willy-nilly. He's gonna wait until there is a clear shot on our life. And we must be aware that our enemy fights like that. His goal is to destroy you, to rob, kill, and destroy. That's what he's willing to do. And that is what we're going to read, ends up happening to his family. It's a tragic story. Now, Lot himself, we're gonna read it, it's called righteous lot. But I just would 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 challenge you. Are there things that you are allowing? in your life that you would have never allowed however many months or years ago. That would have never been found in your life. Would have never been found in your family. It would have never been in the relationship you have you know, with your friends and, and maybe the person you're dating or the person you're married to. But that, now all of a sudden there's more and more things coming in. And that is that slow burn. That is that subtle compromise that I would say be leery of and make the necessary changes. Um, have you moved from steadfastness? Have you moved from that place of just being on fire and obedient to the Lord? Then it's time to come back. You don't have to experience those unintended consequences. Let's keep on reading verses 2 and 3. We know that there, in verse 1 there's angels that have come. And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early. I'm sure there was that emphasis, and you'll see why I believe that. And go on your way. And they said, No, but we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. So Lot's going to show hospitality to these angels. Hospitality is an important uh, practice from Old Testament to New Testament. That art of showing kindness and helping somebody in a practical need in their life. In this instance, the practical need is food, something to drink, and a place to sleep. It was kindness. And it was an important thing in that culture and in that day, but in Scripture as well. As a matter of fact, if we carry this idea and follow hospitality out all the way even into the New Testament, it is a requirement of pastors that they be hospitable. That they're, they know how to walk in the art of kindness and, and welcoming. Really, the principle here is that you know how to help people out in a practical way. And you may say, well, you know... I don't even know how to make unleavened bread. Forget it. I'm not. No, no. Okay, let, let's broaden our horizons here a little bit, all right? It, it, it might not be that somebody needs to stay the night because they can stay at Hampton Inn or wherever else. But there is all around us people that are in need, that have practical things that they need refreshment in, that they need rest in, that they need somebody to just help them take the load off. And this is where we are all should be coming in. And I just would ask you, when is the last time you have walked out an act of hospitality towards somebody? Maybe it's opening up your house and welcoming them in. Maybe it's coming and, and just seeing them downcast and seeking to refresh them spiritually and emotionally and just be there for, for them. Maybe it's taking them out to you know coffee and, and spending. I don't know. But when is the last time, not just for your own social benefit, but when you actually reached out and showed kindness to a person. That's what we've been called to. And actually, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by, doing, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. What's that? You may think you're being nice to a stranger, but that actually might be an angel sent on a mission by the Lord, so we could actually encounter angels and mistake them as being fully human, when in fact they are messengers sent from heaven on a specific task, and that's what we have happening here. Um, these are two messengers sent on a specific task. Makes you kind of wonder, huh? Makes you think about some of the people maybe you've met, strangers you've just met on the way. Could have they been? Those angels that we were unaware of, but we were kind. So the idea is, hey, show hospitality, because it might be an angel, and you're going to see him one day in heaven. It's like, wow, you were rude. I mean, you didn't help me. You didn't, like, do anything for me. And so there's that kind of idea of, hey, you, don't, you never know who you're encountering. You never know who you're helping. Um, but really, the, I mean, don't let angels be your motivation. It's just let love be the motivation, And that we want to show kindness to people. So Lot has these two angels that are coming to stay in his house. Um, He's showing hospitality. Look at verses 4 through 11. And and we are going to enter into some dark places as we we go into this section of Scripture. We're going to see uh, Sodom's depravity on display. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people... So. It's trying to show you this isn't just an isolated problem. Old, young, all the people from every quarter. It wasn't just a bad part of town. It was a bad part and a good part of town, if there is such a thing as a good part of town in Sodom. And so um, they're coming out and said, we want. Uh, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. They wanted to rape these angels. So, verse 6: Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters. Who have not known a man, please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. And only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. (laughs) I'm not going to get into lots. Stupid, boneheaded, what are you thinking move to offer up his daughters? Other than to say... Maybe this was, and we can find another place in Scripture where something else happens, where a Levite does this. And he does a similar kind of a thing. And all I can, I just, I'll just address it. Maybe it was, I don't know. But maybe in the culture, the idea of a stranger being um, mistreated was a worse crime than your daughter being mistreated. You need to get a new culture at that point. You need to have your thinking recalibrated to understand that your daughters should be of highest priority. Um, and that's not what we see going on here. But you know, here is the problem with culture. Maybe every, every culture, maybe people would have said, well, that's a great thing. That's, what, that's honorable. That's not honorable. That's not. The, he, he should be their number one protector. Not their number one danger. And and so he does this. But, you know, we have to make certain that we don't allow what is culturally acceptable to become our way of thinking. We read this and we think, that is out of this world. Who could ever do that? People that are affected by their culture and are compromising can do that. And let's be careful lest we think we are above making these types of mistakes. It really is a disturbing story All the way around. But Lot kind of knew this was going to happen, didn't he? I mean, he talks about, you know, hey, this is why I brought these men into the house. Because I knew you guys would be up to no good. Meaning that this was not a new episode in Sodom and Gomorrah's uh, account. They were known for abusing people. He was aware of it. And that's why, he says, you got to leave early and you're staying in my house. No, we'll just sleep outside. Oh, no, you don't. So he brought him in. He says, this is the very reason why I brought these guys in the house. Because I knew what you would do. This is how wicked the city was. And this is why the Lord is going to bring judgment. Lot, in verse 9, tried to stay the tide of evil in Sodom. and He was unsuccessful and they became very annoyed with him. The New Testament picks up on this account. And it's in 2 Peter verses 5 through 8. Really, we'll read verses 6 through 8 that zeroes in on this. This is And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example, an example to those who afterward, afterward would live ungodly. You want to live an ungodly life? Then Sodom and Gomorrah is your lesson. Verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds which all of us want to stand up and say then get out. But he didn't. And there was the, the chain reaction of that compromise and staying in that place. And He's called righteous twice. I don't think there's anything that the Lord looked on with his offering up of his daughters that he thought was righteous. But aren't you glad that our lives are not measured by one single deed alone? Because if that was the case, none of us would be righteous. But uh, he was a man that lived, for the most part, in an upright way, although I submit to you he has made a series of compromises that he will be able to endure fairly well, but not his family. So these angels have come to bring destruction on this city because of the wickedness and the cry of the innocent that had reached the ears of the Lord. Remember chapter 18. The glaring sin of Sodom here in chapter 19 is their desire to abuse these men. I mean, it's unsettling to hear it. It's not comfortable to say it. But that's obviously the glaring sin. But it's not the only sin of Sodom. There's a few other places. In Isaiah chapter 1, it talks about how they oppressed the widow and the fatherless. Um, In Jeremiah 23, it talks about how they were uh, adulterers. They were liars. And how they actually encouraged and helped people carry out evil plans. In Ezekiel chapter 16... We read about their pride and their complacency. While living in luxury, they had no pity on those that were in need. So there's a long description of the sins of Sodom and what she had done and what she had committed. But of all the things that are presented, it is this one scene here where they want to know carnally these angels sent from heaven. It's a way in which the Lord is trying to show us the height or the depth, I guess you could better way to go, of their wickedness. They were willing to even do something like this. The idea is, can it get any worse in this town? Now, why do I take the time to make this point? Because some who reject the idea that God has called men and women of every generation to sexual purity. That is, that they should maintain sexual purity inside the relationship of a biological man and a biological woman being joined together in marriage. And that is where sex is to take place. It's not with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. It's not with somebody else's wife. It's not with uh, you know two men or two women or any other type of sexual immorality. So those who oppose this especially on this homosexual side of it they reject it and they say God did not judge the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the homosexual because of homosexuality but because of the rape or because they weren't hospitable some will say They they weren't showing hospitality well so God wipes out an entire city because they didn't offer like you know an extra round of pita bread are you kidding me? I don't think that's the issue here. It goes much deeper than that. And yes, there were other issues that are mentioned in Scripture, but on the moment and the day that they are going to, or the night before they're going to be judged, the Lord shows how unrighteous this town is. Because if you back up into chapter 18, the whole discussion between Abraham and the Lord is, you would never judge a city that is righteous, that had righteous people in it, would you? And the Lord says, no, I would never do that. And they got all the way down to 10. He goes, if there's 10, I'll save the city. But there was not even 10 in the city. So chapter 19 continues to show that God is righteous in his judgment against this town. And it's not like he all of a sudden decided to figure out he was going to judge them when this scene unfolds in chapter 19. He has already come down in chapter 18 and reveals in chapter 18 that he is going to judge this town for their wickedness. And it's like the author is saying, what kind of wickedness? Hold on. The kind of wickedness that they would even want to abuse angels sent from the Lord. Any attempt to try and say that uh, and to use this as a, a proof text that God does not mind or is not bothered by homosexuality is a complete missing of the context in the story and the rest of Scripture for that matter. Let, let, let's get a commentary in Scripture about chapter 19. It is found in that little book, right before Revelation, called Jude. Only one chapter, verse 7, and I got it up there for you. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to what? Sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, a way to refer to um, homosexuality, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of the eternal fire. So, so those that want to say this is not an example that sexual immorality and going after strange f- uh, flesh is a sin, totally disregard what the Word of God has to say. In our day, we see people dismissing the Word of God when it comes to this issue of sexual, uh, sexuality. Sexuality. Adultery is okay because, you know, you need to, if you're unhappy in your marriage, then you need to go and find somebody else. Fornication is okay because if you really love them, even though you're not married, this is all right. It's okay. Everybody does that. Um, same, uh, gender sex is okay because this is the way I've been made or incest. Or I mean, There's all kinds of compromise that's going on. But what does the word of God have to say? Well, the Word of God deals with all sexual immorality the same way. If God doesn't just you know, pick out one sexual sin and say, you know, you shouldn't do this. He has the same word to all people as it relates to their sexuality, and that is, be holy. Be holy in your conduct. That's what the Lord calls us to. Is this... A, 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 an attempt to zero in on homosexuality and lesbianism and, and, and pile on them. Oh, I know. I, I, I'm, I'm ready for it. I, I realize that some people are going to say this. This can go on the radio. We'll probably get some response to it. But I'll just say it clearly no, it's not that at all. It's us teaching through the Bible. We happen to be in Genesis chapter 19, and we're going to talk about it because it's there for us to talk about it. And we're going to expand it out over a couple of weeks. And deal with this issue because it's been brought to our homes, it's been brought to our families, it's been brought to the church to have to deal with it. You see, you know, 20 years ago, the the homosexual agenda did not care if the church opened her doors or not. They do today. They didn't, they, they mocked the church. They wanted nothing to do with the church. You know, marriage was a crazy thing, it was a failed institution. They wanted nothing to do with it. But that is not the narrative any longer. So, what am I saying? We have to talk about this. I think Bible-believing churches have had to talk more about this than they ever would have normally talked about it because the way pressure has come upon the church and upon our families to embrace it and say that it's okay. We can no more say that homosexuality and lesbianism is okay than we can lying or fornication Or any other sin. Because all sin is wicked. This is not a target and saying this is the worst sin of all. Not saying that. It's a sin that the Lord calls people to repent of. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I want to go through a handful of scriptures. And this is where I'm going to ask you to get your Bibles. I want you to see it. I want you to read it. Because the narrative that's out there is that in the Old Testament, God never condemned homosexuality. The only thing that he condemned, this is what they say, is that where there was male prostitution going on at pagan temples, that is a homosexuality that he didn't disapprove of because they were not being faithful to Yahweh. And that cult prostitution, that's the problem. That was a problem. But to make it out that that is the only problem is to completely deny what Scripture says. Well, it's so hard to interpret the Word of God. Uh, no, it's not. It's not. There, are there difficult passages? Absolutely. But we'll read these. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to find out what God is saying don't do. It's very clear. So we begin in Le- Leviticus chapter 18 verses 20 through 25. And then we're going to go to Le- uh, Leviticus 20, and we're going to go to Deuteronomy 23. So let's, let's start here at verse uh, 20 of Leviticus 18. So it's not, what's my opinion? doesn't much matter. Let's find out what the Word of God has to say. He says, Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Molech Nor shall you profane the name of your God. So pass through the fire of Molech. They would offer up their children in the fires um, of the worship of the God of Molech. And this would be child sacrifice. So don't commit adultery. Don't kill your children. (laughs) He says, I am the Lord. You shall not lie with the male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations. Oh, it was just for the nation of Israel. No, it's nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I will visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. This is why God brought judgment upon the Canaanites. Chapter 20, verse 13. If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. I don't know what's hard to interpret about that. It's written in pretty simple, graphic language, but it's very easy to find out and to come to the conclusion, God does not approve of same-sex unions. It was something that held capital punishment, as did adultery. Deuteronomy 23, 17. says, there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. What's that? There shall be no male or female prostitutes working at the pagan temples so that people can come and worship their God through the act of sex. And this is where people like to say, see, this is where it is. It's only in that context. That is, you've read it, you've seen it for yourself. At this point, people generally like to say, yeah, well, that's the Old Testament. That is true. It is the Old Testament. So we move to the New Testament, which we've already looked at Jude 1, 7. That tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual immorality stands as an example to those that would want to walk in ungodliness that God punishes sin. But there's other places. Romans chapter one, verses 26 and 27 says, "For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, nature. Likewise also, the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Every single time you read that in Scripture, you can be guaranteed there is a world of deception around whatever he, the writer, is about to say. 100% of the time. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. They're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And you can keep on reading and you can find the context in these. So God wants us to be wholly devoted to him and to be sexually pure. Not just a statement for homosexuals, but for all people. One last passage, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8-11. through But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers. Does anybody think that it's okay to commit murder? I don't think so. For fornicators, for sodomites, Now, New King James here says for kidnappers, but some of your translations will say for slave traders. Yes, the New Testament condemns slavery right there. You just read it. And so we we keep on going. For liars, for perjurers, and if there's any other thing which is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which is committed to my trust. So these statements of the New Testament writers makes it so clear That God has not changed his mind from the Old Testament about his desire for people to be sexually pure inside of a marriage. That's where, now, not everybody's going to be married, but if you're not married, you are to live a sexually pure life. Now, the way we hear it in the world is that's impossible. You can't do that. I've got to be true to myself. do, Do you want me to deny myself? Actually, this Wednesday night, we'll talk about it. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow after me, you must what? Deny yourself. So yes, you need to deny yourself. Just like I need to deny myself. Just like all people must deny themselves when they want to do something that is sinful or wrong or harmful to themselves or to somebody else. Yes, we're asking you to deny yourself. If you want to kill me, I'm asking you, deny yourself. Don't do it. If you want to come steal my stuff, deny yourself, please. So this is what we are called to. Somebody takes your parking space and you want to ram them with your car, deny yourself. You might not feel like it. You're thinking, I've got insurance. It's going to be all right. No, deny yourself. Don't let your anger get control of you. This idea that we would ask people to deny their sexual urges that are condemned in Scripture as being an unloving and an unkind thing to do is just ridiculous. It is not an unloving thing to do. It is the most loving thing to do. I want to close with talking about this one point here, and I've got to make it fast. I said that the Bible's not hard to interpret. There are certainly places that you got to spend some time working, but most of it you read it and it's pretty clear what the author is trying to say. And we want to know what the author is trying to say. That's important. That is so important that we come to the conclusion of what God intended when he had Saul, uh, Paul or he had Moses write scripture down. What was God's intention? What did the author intend? And so we study language and we study the the cultural context and we study the historical context and we study the surrounding scriptural context and all of these things help us arrive at understanding what the Word of God has to say. Among evangelicals, we believe it's inspired that the Bible's come from the Lord, that it's inerrant, that because it's come from the Lord, it's without mistake. We also believe that it's sufficient, meaning that the Word of God can tell me how to be an employer, an employee, a husband, a wife, a brother in the body of Christ, how I should conduct myself in the world to my neighbors. It's sufficient to speak to all the issues of my life. But there's one more area that we need to talk about, and that is its authority. Evangelicals right now typically don't have a problem with the first three. If there's going to be a problem... It's going to come in at number four, the authority for God to tell us how to live our lives. How to forgive, how to walk in love, how to show kindness. And so what is going on is that people are saying, listen, the Bible doesn't have the authority to tell me how to live as it relates to my sexuality. That is a personal decision that I will make based upon how I feel and what I think. Well, God calls you to walk in purity and walk in holiness. But how do people arrive at the place of not just saying they're going to live as a sexual sin, but they actually say that the Bible affirms sexual sin? Because if you find out what the author intended, and we just read through a lot of passages, you cannot say that the author intended to encourage homosexuality or fornication or adultery or lying or slavery. The Bible condemns those things. So how do people arrive at this? Well, let me just read to you a quote that's taken from an article, which I do not recommend. (laughs) And it's called um, The Power of the Bible. It really should be titled The Power of the Reader of the Bible. But this is by Reverend uh, Mona West. And I've shared this quote with you before, but I believe it's so important. She writes and she says this. Not only can there be meaning in the author's original intent, but meaning can be derived by the reader. Meaning, actual, or meaning actually happens in the interaction between the reader and the text. This concept has greatly impacted biblical interpretation. Here it is. Because now who is reading the text is just as important as the one who wrote the text. What what that means is not what does the Bible say, but what does it mean to you? Now, I'm not talking about the application. I'm talking about the interpretation. And no offense, but it really doesn't matter what you think it means. What matters is what did the author say that it meant? That's what we must discover. And so people will come back and they will read these passages and they will say, I don't think that's what that means. On what basis? Well, that's not what it means to me. And I have just as as much authority as the author of Scripture to say what the Bible means or doesn't mean. And so we can go through inspiration, and we can talk about inerrancy, and we can talk about sufficiency. But when it comes to the authority of God's Word to tell us how to live, many are chucking that out the window. And that's how we have arrived at a place where so many people inside the church are saying it's okay to live in sexual sin. That was written for back then. It is not written for now. How do you know that? How do you know that? Let me ask you another question. How do you know anything about the Bible? How do, you know anything about, me, how do you know anything about Jesus? It's from the Bible. Did Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Yeah, I believe that. Did he die on the cross? Yeah. Did he rise from the dead? Yes. Is he coming back? Yes, I believe all that. How do you know that? Because the Bible has taught you that. But now all of a sudden when it comes to matters that you don't find comfortable You're willing to sacrifice the clear teaching of the Word of God to accommodate your preference. And let me say this. The one thing that I think is causing so many Bible-believing Christians to cave is under the doctrine of sentimentality. What's that? I've got a friend or a relative that I know that's in this sexual sin, and I could never imagine that God would ever want to bring judgment upon them for the way they're living. They're such good people. And so it's because of that sentiment you have, because of that relationship with, you have with them, that you now will look at the Word of God and say, well, it can't be true because this has got to be true. But time out. If that part of God's Word, which is so clear, is not true, how do we know Him being born in Bethlehem is true? And how do we know that Him dying on the cross and rising from the dead is true? Where do we find you know, the authority? Well, evidently, we find it... And whoever's reading the Bible, if that's the approach you're taking it. So really, rather than looking to the word of God to find out how to live our lives and get to heaven, we ought to just follow around whoever says this part's true and that part's not. So there are, you know, the, the, you know, the unintended consequences of Compromise. This is the unintended consequence of compromising the word of God in one spot to accommodate your desires or to accommodate the desires of somebody you love because you don't want to think about the Lord disapproving of them. It is one of the most selfish things you can do because what they need to be told in love and kindness is the Lord loves you and died on the cross for you and you need to repent and you need to turn that you might be forgiven. And if you're more concerned about your next meal being uncomfortable, are you not having a job or your friend not calling you back? You're thinking about yourself and not them and their eternal soul. And that is a selfish thing to do. Is it hard? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Is it hard to say these things? Yes, it is. But it's clear in Scripture. Well, this just seems like hate language only because they have defined that as hate language. There is no hate I have have intentionally included in almost every statement I've made about homosexuality, fornication, adultery, lying, perjury, and idolatry. Letting us understand that it's not just one issue, it's all sin issues. But to look at this passage and come away and say that God is for homosexuality, it's just not there. Well, I just can't believe in a God who would condemn that. Jesus hung on the cross and he died for that. He suffered in his own body for sexual sin and for lying and thievery and idolatry and all the rest. How can we possibly, as believers, stick our finger in the face of God and say, we don't think you care, we don't think you're just, we don't think you love, when he offered up his only son on the cross and a terrible death. In Genesis chapter 6, God judged the world. In Genesis chapter 19, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. At Calvary, God judged the world in his son's body. So we wouldn't have to go through judgment. The Lord wants you to be free. He wants you to walk in holiness, whatever the sin may be, whether it's been named or not. Now in the coming weeks, I want to address some of the other objections that come up around this. because I really want to give a thorough conversation and talk about it. Uh, I know many of you have sent in questions on this topic and doing the best to include them as we go through that. But listen, this is the word of the Lord. And this is what he has called us to. Thessalonians says that God's will is our sexual purity. That's what he wants. So if you're living... In a homosexual life or lesbian lifestyle, I'll say the same thing to you that I'll say to the person that's living with their boyfriend and girlfriend. You need to repent. And I'll say the same thing to the guy, the husband, or the wife who's watching pornography. You need to repent. And I'll say the same thing to somebody who's lying or somebody who flies off the handle, to somebody who's controlled by materialism. We need to repent. We're not allowed to walk in sin We are the redeemed. We are set apart. And this is the word of the Lord for us. And so, no, there's there's no hate here whatsoever. None. You are welcome to be here, and we want to see you walk with the Lord and know him just like we know him. And there's only one way to come to him, and that's acknowledging that he is Lord and Savior.